Well, as Jeff mentioned, uh, we are beginning a new series this morning in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel is, of course, uh, one of four, the others, of course, being Matthew, Mark, and John. The Gospel of Luke is really the first of a two-part series that Luke wrote. Uh, We know them in the Bible as the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, It was uh, really Luke writing about what Jesus began to do in his incarnation and what Jesus continued to do uh, after his resurrection and ascension, what Jesus continued to do through the work of his Holy Spirit in building his church. That's what the the book of Acts is about. This morning, we begin to look at Luke, the gospel. Now, Luke was most likely a Gentile. And Luke was a a companion of the Apostle Paul. We see Paul write about him in, for instance, the book of Colossians. He's writing this letter and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And from that passage, we learn that Luke was also a doctor. Uh, Luke was a historian, as we will see. Luke is an amazing character and he wrote an amazing gospel. The Gospel of Luke has its own uniqueness, uh, as, as all the Gospels do. Luke, for instance, contains some parables that are very beloved that the other Gospels do not, like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. Luke focuses on the Holy Spirit and his work much more than the other Gospels do. For instance, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 28 times in the Gospel of Luke, which is more than The Holy Spirit is mentioned in all of the other Gospels combined. The Gospel of Luke focuses a lot on those the Lord came to save, that the Lord came to seek and save the lost. And the Gospel of Luke, the lost includes those such as the poor and the Gentiles. Now we don't know exactly when the Gospel of Luke was written. Most scholars believe it was somewhere between A.D. 62 and and A.D. 70, some prefer the later date, I prefer the earlier date. Uh, I prefer that because uh, Luke will say in a moment, as we'll see, that he interviews eyewitnesses to Jesus and what he did, and and if it was as late as A.D. 70, most of the apostles would have been martyred by then, if not all of them, well, except for John. Uh, Our text today is Luke chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. If you have a Bible with you, you'll want to open it up and follow along not only as I read, but keep it open as we go through it and look at specific verses and phrases. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath, and you'll find our text on page 855. Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah 
of the, the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And Elizabeth, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Luke's gospel begins in verses one through four with what is in Greek one really long, complex sentence. We've broken it into four verses. But by beginning this way with this kind of prelude, Luke is following in the footsteps of the writers of that time, the Greco-Roman authors, who would oftentimes begin a work of importance with a kind of prelude like that. Notice right from the beginning, when he uh, begins in this prelude, that he uh, acknowledges that there have been many other people besides himself that up till this point have been interested in and have wanted to compile and speak of and tell of all of the things that Jesus has done, that they've seen, that they've heard. This means that by the time Luke is writing and compiling his gospel, lots of other people have taken notice of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and that they've seen in him something that is extraordinary, 
that they want to talk about, that they want to put down, and that they want to pass on. Now, it's interesting, uh, right around Christmas, it seems, we always have specials that come out, television specials on PBS or the History Channel, and we have articles written in Time Magazine or whatever, and a lot of times uh, they're, these specials and these articles are, are done and written and produced by skeptics. They're produced by non-Christians, by unbelieving historians or liberal theologians that really don't believe anything that is miraculous. And so they read these Gospels and they strip out anything that Jesus does that to them seems impossible, and they leave only the human things, and yet they somehow try to pass them off as something of significance. What is significant about him? If you strip away the God part of him, he's like anyone else. Why are we even celebrating him? And yet, they will try to pass him off. But Luke and others attest those prior to Luke that he interviewed, and Luke himself attests that Jesus is singular in the history of the world, that he is unlike anyone else, that he is among all human beings that have ever existed, the only one who was both God and man in one person. Luke is stating here that he is using the work of other investigators, that he is using the work of others that came before who were eyewitnesses. In other words, he is a, not only a doctor, he's a historian. And what in, in, in saying this, he's, he's explicitly not saying that he went into some room alone and was given some vision that is unverifiable, that he's now telling all of us that we now have to believe. He is explicitly saying that, in a sense, he's a latecomer to this whole thing, that he is writing down what lots of other people have seen. He's not making stuff up. He's putting together the best account that he can. Now, the phrase here, the things that have been accomplished among us, is a very important phrase. Theologians call it a theological passive participle. In using that phrase, Luke is making it clear that what he is compiling and what he's sharing are not simply events, events even done by a great person, but that these events done by Jesus are in fact fulfilling God's promises, that God is fulfilling through this person his actions. Luke speaks of those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and, he says, ministers of the word. I think he sat down, for instance, and, uh, and interviewed Mary. I think that's one of the reasons we have in Luke a very detailed account of what happened at Jesus' birth. He interviewed a lot of people, but specifically he's saying, I interviewed those who were both eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And in speaking of this specific category, he is saying that he interviewed the apostles, those who were closest to Jesus, those whom Jesus uh, infused 
with special authority to represent him. That's one of the reasons why, again, I think Luke was written earlier. Because if it had been written later, he wouldn't have had any apostles to interview other than John. One scholar says this, the use of the word ministers emphasizes that they were not propagandists for their own views of what happened to Jesus, but that they unreservedly put their persons and work in the service of Jesus' cause. And when, when Luke uses this verb delivered, it's a technical term for the handing down of material as authoritative teaching. We don't know who Theophilus is. Luke is, is writing to him and he's addressing this to him. We, we don't know anything about this person. We do know that his name means lover of God or beloved by God. And some suggest that, that Luke is not writing to a particular person. I believe he is. But some say, you know, maybe he's just writing his gospel to any believer. <laughs> you, lover of God. You, beloved by God. I'm writing this to you. Either way, it, what matters is, is what he says. Now, why point all of this out, all, all of these facts in this prelude? Well, for the same reason that Luke points it out. He says here to Theophilus, just as he's saying to us, that, that he's done all of this diligent work that you might have certainty in these things. This gospel in other words, is written for the express purpose of giving the readers of that day and giving us today the certainty that what Luke says in his gospel is true. So even if, even if we were to read Luke's gospel simply as the work of a historian, we would have to conclude that Luke has done his due diligence that when Luke had written his gospel, there were many people alive who could attest to either what he was saying is true or false. If all we were to do is to accept this as a work of history, we would have to walk away saying, I'm really being challenged here to believe that the God-man actually walked the earth and did these things. Because an excellent historian who did all of his research has written this down and believes it wholeheartedly. But of course, it's not simply the work of a human historian, is it? Yes, Luke did his due diligence, but, but as divinely inspired scripture, we can know that while Luke was doing his part, God was doing his. This is not simply the work of human hands. Peter tells us, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. One scholar says this, Can we really be sure that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise and that he brings God's salvation both now and in the future? Luke intends to answer these questions with a resounding yes. Well, Luke begins his account of this history by speaking about the days of Herod, 
king of Judea. That was Herod the Great. Later, we'll see in Luke's gospel of another Herod, that's Herod Antipas, but right now here at the beginning is Herod the Great. Herod reigned from 37 to 4 BC, and he was essentially a puppet king of Rome. During this time, Rome was uh, the, the main power on earth. We just went through Daniel and read about all kinds of world powers. Well, at this time, Rome was the power, and they had installed Herod as this puppet king to rule Judea. And I had a Roman history professor uh, years ago in college say that essentially Judea was the armpit of the Roman Empire. So no doubt, whoever ruled that got the worst job. Uh, But Herod was that one. Herod was a paranoid man. He was a, a brilliant man in a sense. He, he uh, designed and built great works of architecture, uh, one of which is the Fortress Masada that uh, the Romans invaded and, and conquered in 70 AD uh, when Rome invent, invaded uh, Jerusalem and Jews had fled to the top of Masada. Uh, that, though, shows you Uh, The fact that he even built that fortress shows you his paranoia. He was paranoid that someone was always conspiring against him to take his throne away from him. That was why he executed his two sons. Imagine that. They say uh, that uh, people of the day said it was better to be Herod's dog than to be Herod's son. You teenagers out there, those of you who think your parents are so bad, Thank God that you're not Herod's child. Nothing your parents will ever do to you can come close to what Herod did. Most impressively, Herod, his building projects uh, beginning around 20 BC, Herod began a massive renovation and expansion plan for the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, the first temple was built by Solomon, and then that was destroyed. We talked about that a lot when we went through Daniel. Well, When the exiles returned to Jerusalem, they built a second temple that was really pitiful. Uh, The one that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. But when Herod came along, he built that thing up and he made it, the whole complex was humongous. In fact, scholars say that at the time, for a time, it was the largest building complex in the ancient world. It was amazing huge and beautiful. And yet, despite the grandeur, outwardly, things were not the same. Because ever since Nebuchadnezzar invaded and destroyed the first temple, he took with him the Ark of the Covenant. That was either destroyed or hidden somewhere, and the Jews never recovered it. And so this new temple did not contain within it the Ark of the Covenant. Furthermore, this new temple never had the glory of God shine in it, what was called the Shekinah glory that shone in the first tabernacle and then later the first temple. The glory of God had departed, perhaps Worst of all, or at least along the same lines, is that God had ceased speaking. The last prophet who had spoken God's words was the prophet Malachi, some 400 years earlier. If you read the the Jewish historian Josephus, or if you read 1 Maccabees, which I talked about when we were talking about Daniel, you can read in there how they, they even say that 
uh, since Malachi, no prophet has spoken, that God is silent. And so there's a lot here at this time that despite the kind of outward beauty is in fact dark and depressing. We are told here that it is during this time that there is a priest named Zechariah. Now he's up till this point been a relatively obscure person, but his life is about to change. He is we are told, has a wife named Elizabeth who is also uh, a, a relative of Aaron. So both part of that priestly line. And Luke tells us that, that they were both upstanding citizens. He, he actually says in here, they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. Now, we might read this as Christians and say, now, wait a, wait a second. <laughs> uh, this sounds like they were sinless. Uh, but no, that's not what, what Luke's saying. I mean, we will see in just a few minutes that Zechariah is a great sinner. But, uh, but no, that didn't mean that they were sinless. One scholar says this, this use of righteous, the word there, is different from Paul's use of the term. The righteousness described here fits its pre-cross setting. It basically means that they trust God and that they're following the commandments that God gave in the law. They are uh, sacrificing, they're, they're, they're following the rituals. That's essentially what it means here. Now it's important to note that, and I think Luke mentions this, that they are righteous before God, that they walk blamelessly, because by saying that, it means that Elizabeth's barrenness is not a punishment for sin. That's one of the things that in that day it would have been a stigma. Somebody's barren, God must be judging them for sin. And, and we see here clearly that that's not the case. We, we even see the stigma he kind of at the end here in verse 24 when Elizabeth says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, Luke is dispelling that, that she's barren because of judgment because of sin, but he does want us to see essentially the impossibility of this situation. That she is barren, has been, their entire marriage, they don't have any children, and they're both advanced in age. In other words, they're not going to have any children. I mean, that's the point. It would be near impossible, save for a miracle, for them to have children. Now, there were 24 divisions of priests. There were 18,000 priests in all. So you can see, even, even being a priest, you're, you're somewhat one in a million in a sense. You're, you're, you're pretty, uh, you're, you're not anyone super special here. There's 18,000 of them, and they served at the temple for a week at a time, twice a year, each of these divisions. And Luke tells us that he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty and, and this is the unbelievable part, that he, Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. They would cast lots to see who this was. That wasn't going on luck. That was saying, God, you make the choice. Casting lots was saying, God, we don't know who you want to serve, so you choose. And God chose 
Zechariah, as we, and we know obviously from the passage why he chose Zechariah. The burning of the incense happened inside the temple. He would go inside the temple and into the holy place. In this holy place was this altar of incense. And the altar of incense stood just before the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go, and and that only once a year. The incense would be burned in conjunction with a sacrifice. Burning of incense, according to scholars, was this incredible privilege. Most priests never had the opportunity to do it. And the ones who were chosen by Lot to burn this incense, when they did it, it would have been the highlight of their life. So Zechariah has already been given an amazing gift just by being able to burn this incense. In a second, it will be overshadowed by a completely better gift. Zechariah was to go in, walk up to this altar, pray, offer the incense, and then leave. And when he left, it was important that he raise his hand and declare a benediction, which is why when he leaves and can't speak, it's a big deal, because he's supposed to give the the blessing that we read, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That, that was the benediction that he was to give after burning this incense. So you can imagine him as he walks in, alone in the silence, the, the glory of God long since uh, having departed the temple, in the darkness, about, about to, uh, you know, with the only light coming from this lampstand, when suddenly and without warning, an angel of the Lord appears. You can imagine the, the, well, we don't have to imagine because it says that he is terrified by the sight of the angel. The angel appears standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The altar symbolized God's presence. So the angel standing on the right side of the altar gave what he is about to say, it infused it with divine authority, the right side being the all-important side. Notice that first the angel has to tell him, fear not, because he is so terrified. And those words, fear not, are are going to come from Jesus' lips many times throughout the gospel. Notice, though, secondly, the angel says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, when you read that, you say, well, what prayer is he talking about? You would think, perhaps, by reading what he goes on further to say, that that the prayer that he's talking about is the prayer that Zechariah is praying for a child for them. That that, that's the prayer he was praying. He says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You're going to call his name John. Now Zechariah, again, he was in prayer when he walked in. That that was part of the duty was to pray. But, But was that really the prayer that he was praying Because on the one hand, given what the angel says, you would think, well, that's got to be the prayer. But on the other hand, given how old he is and how old she is and and the fact that he can't even believe that they're going to have a son, you would think, well, no, that couldn't have been what he prayed. 
If he did pray it, it must have been a long time ago. You can imagine how often they did pray for a child. But that must have been years and years and years ago. I doubt that he's still praying for a child. And if that's the case, then the fact that they're given a child means that God waited a long time to act on that prayer. Christian, just because you don't see an immediate answer to your prayers doesn't mean that God doesn't hear them when you pray them. And it doesn't mean that God isn't going to act in his time. Nevertheless, I don't think that was the prayer anyway that he was praying at that moment. The prayer that I believe he was praying at that moment was not for a child for himself and for Elizabeth, but in one sense, it was a child for the nation of Israel. Why would I say that? Well, because prayer for the nation was in fact what was supposed to be prayed during this burning of incense. We notice in verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the altar of incense. They were praying outside the same thing he was praying inside. They were praying he was praying, all Israel was praying at the time of sacrifice that God would keep his promises and that he would deliver Israel through the Messiah. Now, as it turns out, God answered both prayers. He answered Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a child and he answered the nation's prayer for a Messiah. Now notice, before we even look at who John is going to be, notice that Zechariah obviously did not believe that God would answer his prayer for a child. Or if he did believe it a long time ago, he has long since believed it. Because notice in verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, how will I know this? For I am an old man, and, and my wife has advanced in years. Notice he, he's asking a question, but it's not an innocent question concerning biology, like how is this going to work? That's Mary's question later. His question betrays unbelief. The angel tells him that. He says, though I stand in the presence of God, you did not believe my words. In other words, Zechariah does not believe that God can do what he's asked. He's prayed, and yet when God answers it, says he's going to answer it, he says, how? Seems impossible. How many of you pray unexpectedly? How many of you pray with some kind of intellectual knowledge that I'm supposed to pray, that I'm told to pray, that, that God's supposed to be able to answer prayers, but somewhere deep inside you think, but this just is impossible. I don't really think God can do what I'm asking him to do because it's too big. It's too impossible, e even for God. I remember uh, my dad was diagnosed uh, years ago with COPD, which was, uh, some of you know, it's a uh, incurable lung disease and the doctor just said it's going to continue to get worse until uh, you're just going to die from it 
And um, he told us that, and, uh, and so my boys were all little, and we started praying every night that, that God would heal him of this COPD. And then, I don't know how long, how much time went by, maybe six months, something, uh, my dad called me. He wasn't living with us yet. Uh, he was still down in Maryland, and, and we were up here. And he called me and said, hey, I've got good news. I went to another doctor uh, this week, and uh, they checked and did further investigation and, and said, I have no trace of COPD. And so I went to my boys that night when I tucked them in, and I said, hey, guys, Chupop gave this great news today. He said that he doesn't have COPD anymore. So that must have meant that the first doctor misdiagnosed him. And then Andrew says, Daddy, why couldn't it have been that God healed him? After all, that's what we've been praying for for six months. Well, I don't know if he said six months. He was little. <laughs> but I said, You're, Andrew, you are absolutely right. Why did I default to the first doctor made a mistake? Why didn't I immediately go to, Lord, thank you for answering our prayer and for healing my dad? It took, it took my son to correct me on that, or at least make it an option. Now notice Zechariah, or the angel tells Zechariah first, who his son will be. Now notice God names him. God says, you're going to name him John. It's not up to you. This is God's name. John means the Lord has been gracious. John, notice, is going to be a source of great joy and gladness, not only for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for many, many others. And that's because, notice, he's, he's going to be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, which, which we'll see uh, in, in a future passage that kind of play out. John the Baptist is kind of the hinge figure between the Old Testament and the New. I remember R.C. Sproul used to trick people and crowds and he would say, who's the greatest Old Testament prophet? And people would guess, you know, Isaiah or Elijah or something like that. And he would say, no, the greatest Old Testament prophet is John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, Jesus says, is greater than anyone prior to Jesus. John the Baptist is, in a sense, the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but because he is filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, and he is the forerunner to the Christ, he is the greatest of all. Notice that the angel describes not only who he will be, but, but what he will do. And notice here that John's main message and his main goal here is to turn. Notice what the angel says. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The language of turning is that of repentance. The language of repentance. Turning away from sin and turning back to God. That's John's mission. His mission is to preach repentance from sin. And we will see from the beginning that that's in fact what John does. When he comes on the scene, he's, he's preaching over and over, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But we'll also see that many in Israel hate his message. They don't want to hear his message. Why? 
Why didn't they want to hear the message of repentance? Well, what did they think their biggest problem was? What did these Jewish leaders think their biggest problem was? They thought their biggest problem was Rome. They thought their biggest problem was living under the tyranny of all of these foreign powers like they had lived since Nebuchadnezzar uprooted everyone. We saw in Daniel that this whole time, this whole intertestamental period was going to be one of sorrow and suffering under the thumb of great powers. They thought the Messiah was supposed to give them freedom from Roman rule. That's what he was to do. Come in, ride in on a white horse, cast Rome out, and set up a theocracy like they had with David. And then John comes along preaching repentance for sin. What in the world? Not only are you preaching repentance from sin, but you're not preaching it to the Romans, who of all people should be told to repent of sin. You're telling us. We're the Jews. We're not the ones doing anything wrong. That's what John ran into. What Jesus ran into. Friends, what does it mean to be saved? See, your answer to that question is going to be based on what you believe you need saving from. For many in Israel, at the time of John the Baptist, salvation meant getting out from under the yoke of Rome. What does it mean today? What, what do people think they need saving from? Salvation today means all kinds of things. Enough money to have the things I want. Fame. Power. A different set of leaders in Washington. Freedom from worry and anxiety. Delaying death a little bit longer. What does the Bible say salvation is? Salvation says, uh, the Bible says salvation is being saved from sin and death. Salvation is being saved from the wrath of God for sin. Sin, according to Scripture, is rebellion against God. Sin is turning away from God. And, and all of those other problems, as legitimate as they may be in their own way, are horizontal problems. They're problems between people. But the Bible says our biggest problem is a vertical problem. It's the problem that we have with God. All of the other horizontal problems that we see in society stem from this vertical problem. Israel's biggest problem was not Rome. They thought it was. Their biggest problem was sin, their sin. And the Messiah had to come not to save them from Rome, but to save them and us from sin and from God's wrath. And John's ministry was to prepare a people for that ministry. And again, we see immediately that the problem is sin. Because here we see that the very first response to this message is sin. From a righteous man, from a priest, who has just spent his time praying and offering incense and being God's holy man. And when he's told the message his first response is sinful unbelief. Disbelieving God is at the heart of sin. It was at the heart of the first sin. What did Adam and Eve do? 
They disbelieved God and they believed Satan and his lies. Disbelieving God is at the heart of their sin, it's at the heart of every sin. And sin creates a problem. A problem between us and God. And that's why we need God himself to solve the problem. Who else can save us from the wrath of God other than God? No one else is powerful enough. There is no one else. Either we're saved from the wrath of God by God or we're not saved. And so God came down to earth to do just that. The last words that God spoke before 400 years of silence came from the lips of Malachi. He said, God said through Malachi, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The angel breaks the silence. He breaks the 400 years of silence by telling Zechariah, Zechariah, your son is the one Malachi spoke about 400 years earlier. Your son is the forerunner to God himself. That's what Malachi said, right? That's what the Lord said. He's going to prepare the way before me. The incarnation is God the Son taking on flesh to dwell among us. And that's exactly what we celebrate each Christmas. What we're going to be celebrating this Christmas. Christ came down to deal with our biggest problem. We can take care of all these other problems, however which way we want, but in the end, we still have our biggest problem to solve. Christ solved it. Friends, that's good news. The angel says it is. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. The last time Gabriel spoke, it was all bad news. It was such bad news that it made Daniel sick to his stomach. This time, he breaks the silence with good news of great joy. Can there be any good news today? I mean, one glance at the news, and you start to believe there isn't any. That's why you come here on Sunday morning. You leave the world out there and you come in here because the world out there is not going to tell you this news. I have good news for you today. The question is, do you believe it? Zechariah couldn't believe it. How interesting that Zechariah's punishment was silence. God had broken his silence with the fulfillment of his promises. And when Zechariah couldn't believe it, he was made silent until the fulfillment of these promises. But we can believe it. Because we don't stand on that side of the cross, we stand on this side. And that's what we remember when we come to the Lord's